Welcome to Conversations for Ali, a podcast sharing the real-life, everyday stories of resilient Australian women from the bush. I'm Ebony Wan. We'll hear how these women have overcome some huge adversities, as well as what tools they use on a daily basis to regain a sense of peace, normality and happiness in their lives again. I've created this podcast in loving memory of my friend, Dr. Alexandra Jane Tapp. This is Conversations for Ali. Today you're going to hear from Rachel Casella, a wife, mother, author and detective working for the Australian Federal Police. I've followed Rachel's story for a few years through her account on Instagram, My Life of Love. In October 2017, Rachel and her husband Johnny lost their seven-and-a-half-month-old baby girl, Mackenzie, to SMA, spinal muscular atrophy. I've always watched in awe at how Rachel and Johnny first of all navigate their grief, share much of it publicly, but also how they have been handed so many challenges since the death of their daughter on the quest to bring a healthy baby into the world. Rachel's story is one of love, loss, hope and resilience. I thought a little while ago that I'd love to interview her for the podcast. I didn't dream that she'd accept, but with no time to question it, she happily said yes and said that she loves taking opportunities to talk about her daughter. Afterwards, I asked her if she had any connection to the Australian bush, as I described my podcast as being about resilient Australian women from the bush. And she said, I grew up in Canberra, the bush capital. With that, we set about organising a time to record and I was looking forward to our conversation. There is so much to learn from Rachel, from how to set a goal for your career and work hard to achieve it, to rising up above the worst type of grief in order to try and make a difference for other families who might be facing similar challenges. This is Rachel's story. Rachel, can you tell us where you were born and where you grew up? Sure. So I was born in Nambour, Queensland, um, which is uh, I think the only other person I know that has been born in that hospital is Kevin Rudd, and I don't know if that's really what I want to <laughs> – it's my favourite association, but that's all right. Um, my parents uh, – my mum's Canadian and my dad's English, and we – they'd moved up from Sydney where they had met on a blind date up to Queensland and um, had my brother and I – and we had pretty much no one around and they were sort of working so hard to be able to support our family. And um, eventually my dad got offered a job, I think when I was about four or five, down in the public service um, in Canberra. And so they picked us up. I think we were in a little blue van and drove us down to Canberra with all our possessions. And um, I grew up in Canberra and um, I think I have a lot of, respect for my parents who probably wanted to do different things with their lives but they signed on to the public service because they knew that it would be a comfortable job and create some stability for the family so yeah I was one of those public service kids in Canberra and I grew up and stayed there until I was about uh 
18, I did a gap year, but yeah, I moved up to Sydney, I think when I was about maybe 25. And so did your mum work while you were growing up? Yeah, I, I actually really, I mean, I'm sure that it probably wasn't their preference, but they financially needed to. And so I always, we always had two working parents, um, which they juggled and um, they even did study at university at the same time, as well mm. as doing a full-time job and having little kids. So I just, yeah, I'm always in awe at them. Yeah, at what they managed to. It is, it is. But you know, they wanted to do it to, you know, have a secure family and a secure home. And I just, yeah, I'm so proud of them. So they both worked in the public service. Um, Mum mostly worked. She went to the CSIO doing. Um, I'm not really quite sure, something science-y. I just remember um, when we were sick from school or needed a day off, uh, they would do things like freeze bananas so we could smash them and little sort of science experiments. So it was much more fun to go to mum's work than it was to go to school. Yeah. Um, And then she ended up working for most of the rest of her career in the health department. Um. And my dad, he originally worked in sort of, I think, computer programming and coding, um, but very quickly moved into executive roles. And um, I think he was the first chief information officer for his um, particular department. And he ended up um, he ended up very high. He was um, the chief operating officer for a number of organisations and um, he ended up actually winning a public service medal for his work. So, like I said, very, very proud of them, especially mm-hmm. considering my dad left home when he was 15 to join the army in, in the UK and then when that didn't turn out well, he ended up joining the Merchant Navy and. He jumped ship when he got to Australia twice, chasing a girl who didn't want him (laughs) Um, and, you know, got to Australia basically being an illegal immigrant. And um, so to see him rise to sort of those levels, it's just, yeah, really impressive. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, And so where did you go to school in Canberra? Um, I was a public school kid. Um, so I went to went to Melba Primary, uh, which ended up turning into Mount Rogers Community School. And um, I had a pretty good time in primary school. The first few years I look at quite fondly. Then the last couple of years I had quite a lot of bullying, uh, which was pretty awful at the time. Mm. Um you know, I had a really great group of friends, but then, you know, sort of the dynamic shifted and um, someone else came to the school and it was, um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't It was a nice few years. So when it came to picking a high school, I ended up picking one that not a single person I knew was going to. Yeah. Um, there was maybe one, but... I just, yeah, I just completely changed and went to a completely different high school. I went to Belconnen High School and then, and that high school was good. Again, I had a really good group of friends, but we were kind of like the, we weren't unpopular, we weren't popular, we were almost kind of like the misfits. Um, 
And a lot of my friends in high school had a lot of issues at home, um, which was foreign to me because I didn't have those issues at home. And my mum and dad always said that I kind of attracted people who needed help. Mm. And um, and then that was one of those kind of like bitchy girl groups where there was always someone on the out. There was always like mm. some drama happening and um, and it just was beyond the drama that I wanted mm. in life. So yet again when I went to college I picked a completely different college that no one was going to that I knew. Well, sorry, I knew a girl that was going to there but um, she was she was someone who worked with me at my part-time job and she was just such a beautiful soul and she said, oh, I've got a great group of friends. I'm the year above you but come to Dixon College. So I was like, all right. Yeah. And Dixon College was great. Um, I had a really, really good time. But, yeah, so a lot of my, a lot of my, my childhood was beautiful. My family was beautiful. Mm. Um, but the schooling was a bit difficult. Yeah, it's, it can be a really hard time, I think, those years, especially for girls. Um, mm. Do you think um, you learnt things going through all of that for, the, for that many years that has made you the woman that you are? Is there, are there things that you carry that, you know, you don't want to be like that or different resilient strategies or anything that helped yeah. shape you? I'm... I definitely think it was a positive thing for shaping me. Um, it definitely wasn't positive at the time and I'm pretty sure that it was very difficult, especially for my mum to sit mm. back and watch and, you know, she tried to get involved in the younger years but the schools just, you know, schools, especially back then, were not really coped with to deal with bullying. It was sort of um, sorted out yourself. Um, but I definitely think it gave me skills, some resilience. Um, it learnt, I think I learnt that you can walk away from situations and you can walk away from people. You don't have to, you know, if an opportunity comes up, you don't have to stay with what you know just because it's comfortable mm. um, or even if it's uncomfortable but it's what you know. I just learnt that sometimes it's okay to to move forward and move on. And mm. I remember when I first told the people in high school that I was going to a different college, they would like call up and leave abusive messages on my answering machine about the fact that I was abandoning them and I was oh. leaving. And But they were really sort of, yeah, quite abusive and, and awful. But I remember thinking at the time I was like, well, that's not going to convince me to stay with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, um, you know, that's just reinforcing my decision, isn't it? So, yeah, I definitely think I learned a lot. And I think it really opened my eyes. Like some of the situations my friends were dealing with at home were were quite, um, you know, quite adult in their their issues. You know, there was, um, geez, like, you know, without sort of giving too much away, but there was like one friend whose mum worked in a brothel had another who was sort of being abused by her dad and her siblings so um, not sexually but physically and so I think it really opened my eyes to um because my life was just so my home life was just so yeah happy and normal yeah so um I, I 
think that was probably quite exposing at the time, but I think in the long run it was actually, I think it's good to see the different types of life and not be as sheltered. Yeah. Um, And so what did you and your brother do growing up in Canberra um, on the weekends or sports and um, different activities like that? Did you, were you involved in the community or did you get out and about? Yeah, we, um, I did, we did a lot of those after school activities, a lot of the weekend activities. So my brother was mostly soccer. Um, I did gymnastics for, I mean, I tried, you know, ballet and swimming and, um, I played the flute and did all of those extracurricular activities, but my main one was very much gymnastics. Um, I did it for about 10 years and won a couple of medals. And I remember I had um, I'd gone into the squad to train for the 2000 Olympics, which was really exciting for me. But I remember my mum pulled me out and I was devastated. Um, but... She was doing it for the right reasons. Um, I think back then he was very, I mean, even still, but I don't really know, It was very. it's very unhealthy sport in the long term. Like I was really tiny at the time and coaches telling you to only eat an apple a day and um, mm. they would push you until you cried. And wow. it was bad for, I was getting injuries on my back and, and my mum just, and they wanted me to train morning and night and weekends and and mum just kind of went no this isn't healthy and Mm. I was pretty upset at the time because I loved it but Mm. I think it was definitely the right decision and looking at me now I definitely don't have the body shape to (laughs) to do that I think once puberty hit I probably was uh not going to be their ideal gymnast so and then um because they worked full time whenever we had school holidays especially the over Christmas summer holidays we always did um holiday programs and they were really good like um we went horse riding did horse riding camps and I loved that I went back and did that a couple of years and ended up teaching little kids how to how to ride in in my spare time and then the same happened with sailing we did a sailing camp for like two or three years in a row and I ended up going back as um, someone who taught people how to sail my specialty was the capsizing drill I would take people out and capsize the boat and teach people how to weather a storm wow and um was that on Lake Burley Griffin yeah yeah Lake Burley Griffin uh it was part of the I think it was part of the YMCA um but yeah we did a lot of extracurricular activities yeah. and um my brother and I did a couple of them together. We had a bit of a, uh, we had a real, we have a good relationship, but we were very like brother and sister. We mm. fought a lot. We fought definitely a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going through high school, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you left school and were you working towards something or sort of waiting to see what would happen? Yeah, I'm not really quite sure when it kicked in but I certainly was very interested in crime um I knew that I wanted to do something around that area um like I said I can't I 
I can't think whether it kicked in more in high school or if it was more college. But um, I really loved psychology as well and I really wanted to, and initially I wanted to be a forensic psychologist because I wanted to um, understand why people committed the crimes that they did. Mm. I was very fascinated by it and I read lots of books from um, people like Paul Britton, which is he's um, a leading forensic psychologist in the UK and they use a lot more forensic psychologists in the UK and the USA. It's still sort of, I guess, a little bit more um, in Australia these days, but it was very uncommon. There was not very many jobs when I was looking at it. And but so I did psychology um, at university. So I did a bachelor in science um, with majoring in psychology. Um, and also in um, forensic anthropology and archaeology, which was really interesting. We'd do, um, so a lot of that was like if you came across a skeleton in a grave, you were able to sort of determine what um, what their race was, their age, their gender, just by yeah. some of their parts of their skeleton. I really loved that class. That was fantastic. Mm. Um, so I did psych at university and um, somewhere along the lines I changed and I didn't want to do psychology. I actually wanted to be the person who locked the criminals up. So um, I wanted to join the AFP, which is not just the federal police, but they do the state police in Canberra, which is where I was, um, because I went to the Australian National University for for uni. And um, I... I remember speaking to my dad. He very much wanted me to be a police officer because he wanted to be a police officer. Uh-huh. But he was, um, he's colorblind. He can't see the red and green color. So um, at the time that wasn't allowed. I think they allow it now. But um, he was very supportive. And I remember him saying, I'll put you in touch with one of my, my friends who can give you some advice on the AFP. And I remember taking a phone call um, this is when I was at uni and I took a phone call from someone who I didn't realise at the time, but he was actually one of the AFP's commissioners. <laughs> um, he was an ex-AFP commissioner, which is, yeah, very crazy that my dad put me in touch with someone so high up to give yeah, me yeah, career advice. Yeah, and I remember him saying to me that the AFP really preferred their people to be a little bit older and to have a little bit more experience. Um, so instead, after university, I joined Australian Customs or Border Force as they are now. And I started as an intelligence analyst. And so I was working in drug imports. Um, so I did that for about two years. And then, and I was still looking every single time for opportunities to join the AFP, um, but they had had like a recruitment freeze, so there was no opportunities for that. Um, so eventually, um, after two years in customs, I arranged to move up to Sydney, and I did intel in customs for um, for drugs as well in Sydney for two years. Then um, I was approached by the Australian Crime Commission to come over and be an intelligence analyst for them. So I spent four years working for them and 
during that time, the applications for AFP came up. Finally, after like five years or so of waiting, um, I went through the process because there's a lot of um, barriers that you have to go through and I went through the process and after eight years in the public service, I finally got an opportunity and I came over to the AFP. Wow. I, you, I mean, I have no idea that's what the process is or how hard it is to get into that. That's so interesting. So that was, well, including study, that was a good 10 years of your life, was it, until you could get into the AFP? Yeah, I mean, that was a combination of advice from um from um, Mick Kilty, the commissioner, to say get a bit of life experience and get okay. some work experience. And then when I sort of felt like I'd had a couple of years, they had that five-year recruitment freeze basically. So, mm. um, And then by the time the recruitment came around, it takes about a year to go through all the barriers. So they do psych assessments, um, mental health checks. They do Gosh. physical assessments. So um, you go through all the barriers and do your interview and... Finally, they offered me a position. So, and was your mum happy for you? Are you a police woman? Is that what your title yes. is? Yeah. Was your uh, mum well, happy with that? Yeah. So now I'm a detective, but okay. Yes, I was a sworn police officer. Yeah. Um, my mum wasn't particularly thrilled. Um, I remember there was a stage that I was. Um, it was when I was working, I think, with customs or, yeah, it was with with customs um, in Sydney those first couple of years. I started um, in their shooting team. So I was um, doing shooting as a hobby and my dad had paid for me to get my L's, my um, to get my motorbike licence. And then he was also asking me if I wanted to go skydiving and I remember my mum just, and he was also talking about the police and I just remember my mum saying to my dad, stop it, stop trying to, like, you're putting her in these really dangerous situations, like, stop doing it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't think she was too happy, but um, at one stage I was very, very much considering um, um, I really liked well, so my, sorry, I, I forgot to say I did a postgraduate diploma and I did it in forensic science and I was specialising in blood spatter distribution patterns and um, I don't think my mum was really very keen um, <laughs> on that side of things. So I don't know if she preferred policing over uh, forensic scientists with blood spatter. So. Yeah. Yeah, you don't sure. look like somebody who does all of these things. It's hard <laughs> to imagine you shooting someone or digging yeah. up skeletons. Um, so have you enjoyed your work for all of this time? Yeah, yeah, I have. That's I have. good. Um, you know, like any job, there's ups and downs and there's frustrations with how things are done and some days you are looking forward to a holiday and some days you're really into it and, mm. You know, it's sort of just like any other job. You go through those ebbs and flows, but um, but I really enjoy what I do, and um, I really enjoy feeling like I make the community a bit safer. Yeah. And do you bring work home with you, or does it stay at work? Um, it mostly stays at work. I mean, yeah. Johnny and I talk about work because we're both in the same field, um, but. I don't, 
I've learnt along the way with everything that's happened to us where the boundaries are and what's healthy and what's not. Mm, so. That's good. Um, so tell me about Johnny, um, your husband now. When did you meet each other and how did you meet? So he was actually my one of my instructors when I was a recruit in the police college. So um, not really what you're supposed to do. Um, so... To be a police officer, you spend six months in the recruit college being trained. And it's a it's a really I I loved that six months, but it is. Is that in Goulburn? No, so Goulburn is where New South Wales Police do theirs. Oh, okay. AFP does theirs in Canberra. Oh radio. So there's a college in Canberra. We spent um, six months being trained there. And Johnny was an OST instructor, which is basically, um, it was operational safety training. So he taught all of the defence work. So, you know, fighting off an attack. He taught firearms. Um, he taught all those sorts of um, being able to defend yourself, but using only the force that is sort of reasonable and necessary. So, um, yeah, I remember seeing him and he remembers seeing me um, on in the first week of me being a recruit in an auditorium. He came to talk about what it was that he was going to teach. Um, we had actually very briefly met twice before. Um, one time he he knew one of my one of my really close friends and um, he had actually asked her out on a date. And they kind of went, it wasn't really a date because she brought me and he brought a friend. It was more of a, you know, oh, we'll see each other out at this club. Yeah. And then he remembers seeing me and going and having a chat to me and thinking, oh, well, this is awkward because I like her better. And I had just got out of a relationship and a seven-year relationship I had been in through my um, early 20s and had just moved to Sydney as well. So it just sort of didn't go anywhere. And then another time I was in the college for a two-week course and it was the same time that he was going through the college as a recruit himself and he remembers seeing me around thinking, oh, there's that girl, I really like her. But, again, nothing happened. Mm. So then when he saw me when I was a recruit and he was a trainer, he thought, oh, this is that girl and I developed a significant crush on him Um, but and I was and I remember like we would look at each other and I felt like we kind of had a connection you know when you don't speak but you hold eyes just that little bit longer and I was thinking but I had spent so long trying to get into the college that I was like no I'm here for business I'm not here for boys um, he's also a trainer, which is not allowed. You're not allowed to date your trainers. Okay. Um, they're not allowed to date the recruits. So we just, I just, just thought it would just be a crush. And then I remember over here, I remember he went off, he was going to go off on two weeks leave and I just thought he was having a, a holiday. And he and I had never spoken about any feelings or anything outside. We were always just talking about work when we went to go get coffees as a group and but I remember overhearing him say to the other recruits that his two weeks leave was actually him going off to get married oh and that he was engaged oh no and I was devastated oh 
I'm devastated for you. I was absolutely devastated because it was the first crush that I had had in years. I'd been single for five years or something like that. I, After my seven-year relationship, I was really determined that I would only date people if it was going to go somewhere. So mm. I'd date someone for no more than a month and then I would get rid of them if they weren't what I wanted. I was very, I'm like, I wanted to be alone rather than be in the wrong relationship. Yeah. So I was enjoying myself as just learning to be me. I'd been in a relationship from 18 to 25. So, but I was devastated. It was the first crush I'd had in ages. And um, I remember that afternoon after I found out we had walked to go and get a coffee in one of the breaks. And I said, oh, so you off to get married. And he told me later, he just sort of in his head, he was like, you're the last person I want to speak to about this. Because he, he didn't want to get married. He, um, he had had a really strong aversion to everything to do with the wedding. He was still, he was two weeks out and he still hadn't, oh, sorry, he was a couple of weeks out and he still hadn't picked his ring. He would get real, he would turn into a panic attack when he thought about going. Mm. And so he had, was really, yeah, he was really scared yeah. and conflicted. And um, anyway, he went off on his leave and I thought that's it. He's he's gone to go get married and and then he came back from his leave and I remember all of the group of recruits were sort of huddled around him and I was like oh I wonder what he's saying I stepped forward and he was telling all of them how he had called off his wedding <gasps> whoa and my heart started racing <laughs> and what a bombshell yeah, it was huge. So he called it off two weeks before the wedding. Oh, the poor thing. Yeah, I felt sorry for both of them. Yeah. Felt really sorry for her because I don't didn't know their dynamic of their relationship. I didn't really, you know, I think you feel sorry for anyone who mm. is being told that two weeks before. I felt sorry for him because I can't even imagine what that inner turmoil must have been like. Mm. Um I still think he probably should have figured out his feelings a bit earlier. Yeah. But, um, and we we say that. Um, I felt really sorry for both of them. And then a couple of weeks later, because that was towards the end of the recruit course, and a couple of weeks later we had our attestation, which is our graduation where we become constables, and we were all in our professional, our, um, our police uniforms and like our and sort of the hats and had all of it and we did our attestation and we became constables and I was I had been really sick for two weeks before that I actually had shingles and acute labyrinthitis and I pushed through the last two weeks of the course and I was so sick and I remember going up from and shaking hands with the commissioner to get my badge and hoping that I didn't throw up on him oh no and then I had to go up another time and it was amazing because I got given the Commissioner's Award for Excellence, which is the um, the award, the overall award for the person who had performed the highest. Oh, how good is that? And I was so proud because, mm. you know, I had wanted to be the, a police officer for so long. And, again, I was like, oh, no, I better have to get up again. Don't throw up. Wow. And then we all cheered and took photos and did that, you know, throwing your hat up into the air that you see on the television. And then yeah. about... Ten minutes later, we were all standing in um, 
the commissioner's dining room with our families around and Johnny walked up to me in front of a whole bunch of other recruits and he asked me out. There you go because you'd officially come to the end of that training so he was Mm. able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And And so he didn't know that you were attracted to him, that conversation. Oh, okay. But you hadn't talked about it. No, 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 no. He says later that he... He knew that I was interested because apparently my I was not subtle with my eyes um, <laughs> looking at him, but we had not talked about it. Yeah. He, um, he didn't know that, you know, we he was very clear that him calling off his wedding wasn't for me. Um, it certainly spurred it on because he was like, I shouldn't be feeling this way about mm. someone if I'm about to get married. Um, but he said he just couldn't do it. And um, I also want to take my hat off to him for calling it off um, because, you know, that's better than getting divorced as hard yeah. as it would have been because he would have had so much pressure with guests coming from all over the country probably like and money. There's so much in that. Yeah. But um, I guess he did the right thing in the end. I think he did as well. Like, you know, like I said, we all tease him about the fact that he left it to the last minute. Mm. Um And we definitely, you know, that's not a nice situation for anyone. But ultimately, I remember when my parents first met him, they, my mum especially, really quizzed him because of the fact that he had just got out of a relationship. Mm. And she ended up walking away and saying, I'm actually really proud of him for the strength that he showed to make that call. Yeah. So. And so is he um, older than you? Yeah, so he's probably, what is he, four years older than me. Okay. So I was 30 when I started the college. Um, I remember turning 30 when I was in the recruit college and being really upset. I cried that afternoon because I was changing careers. I had was dropping $30,000, $40,000 in my salary. I was 30 and I wasn't in a relationship. Mm. Knew I wanted to have kids. It was just like a bit of a dramatic time. But then Johnny asked me out and he was also doing it quickly because he lived in Canberra and I was going back to Sydney. And so he thought this is the time to do it because otherwise she'll go back and I won't see her again. Yeah. So how did that work then going forward if you're both in different cities? So he actually came out to the, um, he came to my family dinner that night asking me out at the wow. station and then he came to my family dinner, which was a bit strange when you think about it. But um, I think. so nice. Yeah, it was. It was really nice. Um, I think, I think my family was probably a bit shocked. <laughs> Just bringing your trainer along who's now yeah. your boyfriend. And I remember we had a couple, in our first couple of dates, like our first couple of dates was sitting in a car by the lake, um, having deep and meaningfuls about what we wanted in life because I'm a bit, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty straight shooter, and and I I was pretty honest and said, well, you know, I'm 30, we live in different states, you've just ended a relationship, I don't know how much of this is a rebound. And so we discussed everything from how if we wanted kids to how they would be brought up. Mm-hmm. I grilled him on what 
would happened because I'm not religious but his family is so I'm like well how do you feel about private religious schools because I'm anti them and he he yeah we had we had some pretty deep yeah talks for our first couple of dates but it was one of those what's the point in doing long distance if our values don't line up yeah so we really sort of had had deep and meaningfuls which was lovely and we we did line up very well and um, so we did long distance for a year. So I was on shift work and he was on normal nine to five during that time. So so I was in uniform at the airport initially for a year and a half. And so I would finish at midnight and then I would drive straight down to Canberra and he would open the door at three o'clock when I got mm-hmm. there and we'd spend the couple of days off that I'd have. And then he would do similar. He would come up on his weekends and then he would leave at 5 a.m. on the Monday morning to be able to drive straight to work. And we just did that for a year. Is his family in Canberra? Yeah, all of our families in Canberra. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. That works well. Yeah. Um, So I guess he decided to move to Sydney. Is that right? At some point? Yeah, so pretty soon after we got together, he we made the decision he'd moved to Sydney. I wasn't interested in going back to Canberra. I think his parents were very upset um, naturally that, um, you know, he had become a bit distant from his family and his past relationship and then being with me, he they kind of felt like they had got um, their son back mm. and um, and then he was going to Sydney. So they were naturally quite upset about it. Um, But we made the decision pretty early that he was going to come to Sydney and it was more, it took a year more just because that's how long it took for the AFP to um, say that they would transfer him. Okay. Um, And so how long were you together before you were engaged? So Johnny had said that um, he said he wanted to propose to me six months after we, after he moved to Sydney. And I'm not quite sure why that, why that came up, maybe because we're talking about when we'd have kids or, but um, he'd moved to Sydney and um, he got approached to do this charity ride. So um, it's from a group called Soldier On, which deals with um, usually soldiers, um, emergency personnel who deal with, uh, who have PTSD from Mm. their work. And um, they were dealing with the Defence Force, but they also wanted to have a representative from AFP. And so Johnny actually has PTSD. He got injured in some riots in the Solomon Islands. Um, He... Uh, there was some riots and he got a rock smashed in his face and he got his cheekbone and his jaw smashed and lost seven teeth and he um, has PTSD from that. So they tapped him on the shoulder and said, do you want to do this charity ride? It's with Soldier On. We'll give you a bike. You've got six months to train and then we'll fly you to Italy and you have to ride up the Italian Dolomites and Hamish Blake, the comedian, and Cadell Evans, the cyclist, will be doing it as well. Yeah, and I remember that happening. With yeah. Hamish. Oh, it was like it was crazy yeah. because it was such an opportunity. But poor Johnny's going, I don't even own a bike. Like how am I supposed to ride up the Dolomites in six months' time? Mm. And I honestly don't know how he did it because everyone he was training with all were 
part-time cyclists. They yeah. were all defence force, part-time cyclists. And um, But Johnny worked and worked and worked and for six months he trained so hard and um, I paid my own way to come over with him because they were paying for him. And um, and he just did this huge mammoth effort of riding up the Italian Dolomites with that crew and we decided to tack on four weeks of travelling around Europe <laughs> and two days after the cycling part had finished and we said goodbye to the whole crew and we were starting ours, we were having a beautiful um dinner next to a canal in Venice and uh, we went for a walk after dinner and he dropped down on one knee and had a Tiffany's ring and proposed. Oh, wow. What a story. That's so amazing. Um, How many kilometres did you say the ride was? I honestly have no idea. It was was more about this, how steep it was. Yeah. It was just like, yeah, it was insane. Even doing it in a car, which is what I was doing behind wow. it, it was so steep. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and did he have to raise money for the charity or did that no. just sort of happen? No, that sort of happened with the soldier on, yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you see the proposal coming? No, I didn't. I was really, I was sort of really hoping that it was going to happen because I was thinking, oh, my gosh, a European engagement, how amazing. Like I was really romanticising it in my head, thinking how beautiful it would be. But all these people kept saying to him, oh, you're going to propose, you're absolutely going to propose. And they were saying it in front of me and Johnny's response was, I would never propose when people are telling me that I should. Yeah. Like the more you tell me to to do it, the less I'm likely to do it. So I was going, shut up, guys. Like, (laughs) you're ruining my chance. This is my, this is it. Like, how many people get this opportunity? Yeah. And then also he was not, um, like, I, I don't remember him being at all nervous about anything, like about his luggage or about, so I just kind of assumed it wasn't happening Mm. at all. Um, but he had actually, he didn't even bring over the box. He had actually just tied the engagement ring inside one of his shoes. Whoa. And like like t- laced it up with the laces inside the shoe and then stuffed it with socks. And that was just his little. That's and, then, and then massively insured it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he was like. Yeah, it was just yeah, that's so exciting. I guess he bought it in Sydney before he left, did he? Yeah, so it turns out he actually also asked my dad whether he could marry me. Oh. So he had a day off and he says he still remembers it because apparently I was a bit of a bitch, but he he drove down to Sydney on his day off. I was at work. He sort of sped down there, turned up to my dad's work. He booked an appointment with his um, his secretary. My dad walked into his office and Johnny was sitting there with a bottle of whiskey and he basically said, you can have this bottle of whiskey if I can have your daughter. Oh, dad's my like, gosh. And Dad's like, sold. <laughs> what a great deal. Yeah. And yeah. then apparently he quickly got in the car and drove back to Sydney. He managed to get home before I did, quickly got into his pyjamas 
and I apparently walked into the house and I went, have you seriously been at home all day and you've done <laughs> nothing around the house? Like you haven't done any cleaning whatsoever. That's so <laughs> yeah. funny. Had a bit of a go at him and he, yeah. like, and he, um, he ended up getting a speeding ticket and um, <gasps> had been driving back from Canberra because he was trying to get back so badly. So, oh, yeah. no. Um, and so how long then was it between getting engaged and your wedding day? Six months. Oh, only six months. Yeah, so we did six months from when he moved to Sydney. We got engaged and then six months later we got married. Oh, and where were you married? We were married at the grounds of Alexandria. Okay. Sydney, which is an absolutely beautiful location. We were married under next to a fountain underneath fairy lights in a beautiful garden and it was just um there was like farm animals making noises and it was just yeah it was spectacular how fun so from initially starting your relationship to getting married what is that like a year and a half or something two years oh two years okay and going into your wedding had you I guess you talked about um what how like wanting to start a family and what you wanted the next few years to look like so we started we started planning the family when we got engaged okay I'm a very type a uh I like to research so I had done research I'd started ovulation tracking um I I sent him I went and checked my egg levels I did you I sent him to go and get his sperm Wow. He did it. Um, we were really, yeah, I was, I, we were planned. We were organised. I knew what tests to, to do to make sure that we had the best chances. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and how old were you when you got married? Um, 32. Okay. Yeah. So, and we started dying on our honeymoon. Radio. And what sort of what came after that? Were you successful in falling pregnant straight away? No, so we didn't get pregnant the the month of the honeymoon or the month after. And um, being the type of person that I was, I went to a fertility clinic and just checked what my options were. And they said, let's do ovulation tracking where we can tell you. So basically they do blood tests. Um, around the time of ovulation, but they can tell you exactly when you're ovulating and when to have sex. Um, and it turns out, so most people tend to have sex or are told to have sex around day 14, which is usual ovulation. But when we did ovulation tracking, we found out that I was ovulating on like day, on day eight. So we were actually missing a whole week. We were, we were off by a week. So really lucky we did that. And that's, um, that's something that's offered to anyone for free for three months. You get three months on Medicare to do that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, people don't know about it. But if anyone sort of um, just wants to get a, it, it does take a bit of time in terms of you have to go and get blood tests every day basically for a week. But it's completely worth it because as soon as we knew we were ovulating on day eight with ovulation tracking on the very first month we got pregnant, Um. We ended up miscarrying that baby at six weeks. Um, oh. We called that baby Hope because of what he or she represented to us. Um, so 
I knew enough that I knew that that was more likely to be most miscarriages are due to the fact that the baby isn't healthy and the body sort of just naturally rejects it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people feel that they can they blame themselves for a miscarriage, but I had researched enough to know that it's very, very, very rarely anything that you actually do. Um, usually it's just a chromosome issue or an implantation issue. So um so whilst we were very upset, very upset, um, we were able to continue the next month. I had a DNC for Hope and then we tried again the next month and we got pregnant that very next month. Okay. Um, that was Mackenzie. Okay. So how was your pregnancy with Mackenzie? Amazing. I loved it. Did you? I loved it, yeah. Um, I really felt like I had been led into some kind of secret group. I had a little bit of a, I felt like I was walking on air. I had a little bit of strut about myself because I was married to the man of my dreams. I was doing the job that I had wanted and I was pregnant, so I was pretty happy. Yeah. I didn't have very many symptoms. Um, like I, I tell people the fact that I craved fruit salad, which is very unlike me, and um, yeah, I, I obviously gained weight and all that sort of stuff, but I was fine with that. Mm. I wasn't sick. I wasn't tired. I just was happy. Wow, that's so good. Yeah. Um, and did you carry her to term? Yeah, so we we were going through the midwife program at Royal Hospital for Women. So um, about 38 weeks, I started to go and visit them a couple of times, I think three times we went because I didn't feel Kenzie moving around as much and I was a bit freaked out. Um, every single time I went there, she they strapped me up and then she put on a show and made me feel ridiculous because yeah. I started kicking and I was like, well, she wasn't doing this, I promise. Yeah. Um, but they were really good and they took it seriously and they said, um, they said, yeah, this happens all the time, but the fact that you've come in three times now in two weeks, um, even though everything that she's doing, everything that we're monitoring, she's really healthy, sometimes it can indicate something that we can't measure. So let's just do an induction. And, um, and we were fine with that. Johnny and I had both made the decision that... Um, I didn't go in with a birth plan and I very much did that specifically. I felt, I still feel like birth plans are not necessarily the healthy thing to do mentally. I think it's really nice to have an idea of what your sort of dream scenario is, but in in a lot of cases your dream scenario doesn't happen and then I feel like you have set yourself up to have a little bit of um you know, maybe postnatal depression or a little bit of this crazy guilt that women seem to have on themselves about having a vaginal birth with no drugs. I don't really like a natural birth because I think that that's quite um, kind of offensive. Mm. Um, Our hope was that it was going to be vaginal. I was going to see if I needed drugs. If I needed it, that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever. Um, I just think there's a little bit too much pressure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we went in and got induced. And did um, you know what you were having? Yeah, we knew we were having. Oh, did you? Yeah, I um, I don't think my type of personality would have well with not having the control. Yeah. 
Um, so, and I, and I, for us, we wanted the connection. I think it's really beautiful if people wait to the birth, but I kind of feel like the day is a surprise enough in itself and learning the sex early on kind of lets you have that connection and, you know, you get, you get the birth all to itself and you get the gender all to itself. So that's kind of how we felt. Yeah. Um, but we did the induction and, um, and that was fine, but I ended up labouring for 40 hours, um, which was a, a bit longer than I suppose we had hoped. Mm. Um, and then it was time to push. I was 10 centimetres, so I pushed for two hours. And then we found that she just wasn't coming out and she had turned posterior and she was looking up instead of looking down. So her yeah. chin wasn't tucked. So I was basically just pushing her into my pelvis um, mm-hmm. for the two hours. So Jeez. they said that they were just going to either do the um, episiotomy and forceps, but then eventually they just went, no, we have to do a emergency Caesar. Um, and, and that was fine. I was a bit upset because I had come so far and done all the work. Um, I remember the birth being quite lovely in that um like I mean the laboring I look back on it with fondness like Johnny was there but so were both my parents they got stuck in the room helping Johnny out um I had gas and then I had morphine because obviously being induced you get really intense contractions really fast yeah um and then after about seven hours I finally seven hours of full contractions I finally uh relented and had the um epidural and then mum dad and johnny were went to the local local to have some dinner and a whiskey to come oh gosh <laughs> while i had to sleep but um yeah what so she was, she was an emergency c-section in the end okay and was she healthy when she was born yeah she was perfect mm. Um, I mean, they when the paediatrician came past, they said that she had like that little a little hole in her heart, which I think a lot of people, a lot of babies have that end up just sort of fixing themselves. And I remember being absolutely terrified when they told me that, um, but that turned out to be fine. But yeah, she was really healthy. She was three point eight nine kilograms, and she was fifty four centimeters, so she was not a small little bub. And yeah. Yeah, she was, she was perfect. Yeah, that's so nice. And what were the first few weeks and months like with her, with the newborn and adjusting to your new life with the baby? Bliss. Mm. We didn't have any. We were just walking on air. We were absolutely. Johnny had eight weeks off. We spent eight weeks as a family just getting to know our new beautiful daughter and her getting to know us and, you know, we we took pleasure in absolutely every first that we got to do with her. The first time we tried to put her in the carrier, the first time we went and got a takeaway coffee with her, like everything was just firsts and um, I just don't remember a single ounce of any any trouble, any upset, like even sleeping, whatever, we didn't care. We just sort mm-hmm. of whatever she wanted, we just kind of went with it and, um, and it was so nice to have that eight weeks as a family. Mm, very special. Mm. Um, so I know that something was wrong with Mackenzie and you didn't yeah. 
know it early on. So can you tell us what what eventuated um, and at what point did you start to realise that something might be up? Yeah, so basically at 10 weeks um, our whole world um, crumbled very, very quickly. Um, she was starting to fuss on the breast a little bit and she had been such a great feeder. She was still feeding really well but she was getting a little bit upset. So I thought I'd take advantage of going to the local hospital for one of those lactation classes. And when I was there, they said, yep, she's um, she's feeding beautifully. There's no concerns. But they, they mentioned that she wasn't moving the way she should. Mm-hmm. And it was certainly not anything that we picked up on. Um, you know, looking back, we can see that she was moving normally when she was born. And then slowly she had stopped moving. But we were first-time parents. She was a newborn. We had no real understanding of what she should or shouldn't be doing. We weren't really hanging out with other babies much. So um, for her to say that, I just um, I felt really scared and worried but also a bit taken aback that someone was saying anything about my child that wasn't mm and perfect and very quickly we were in a new area so I rushed her down to a GP um, that I didn't know and I sort of just waited there rocking her to get into an appointment and then sort of as soon as we got into the appointment and I told her she did a little check and and sort of went you need to go to a pediatrician straight away and it just sort of wow you know, that's with all within like two or three hours. Yeah, that is just enormous. And yeah. what um, did you say you'd initially gone to a lactation consultant? Is that yeah? And then that forced me to sort of quickly go to the GP that was in the area. And what um, like what movements wasn't she showing? Did they say? Did they elaborate on that? No, not really. The only thing that they did was show us pointed to a little boy who was the same age as Kenzie. She, he was 10 weeks and he was on his tummy and he was doing that where you press up on your forearms um, and had his chest off the, the mat. And she said, that little boy is 10 weeks old. That's what she should be able to do. And I had never seen her do that. Yeah. Okay. Um. So did you go to a paediatrician that afternoon? I rang around. Um, the paediatrician, the only one that the GP could get us in was in three weeks. And um, then I rang a paediatrician's room of one that we had read a book. Uh, we had done some some of our sort of pre-birth education was reading his books. So I sort of called the hospital in hope that I could get into him, but he was completely booked out. Mm. Um, And there was another paediatrician that worked in the same room and I was just crying so hard on the phone that the receptionist must have felt sorry for me because she said I can slip you into an appointment with him in two days' time. And what was the panic for you at this point? Like nobody, it doesn't sound like anybody had said, this could be really dangerous or there's a really big concern here. Was it your gut instinct or did somebody say something? No, no one really said anything. It was the fact that I think the doctor 
saying you need to see a paediatrician and then ringing around to a paediatrician straight away as mm-hmm. opposed to here's a referral, go and contact. Yeah. Um, that really set the, the the mind frame that something was really wrong. Yeah. Um, but we had absolutely no indication as to what it could possibly be or to what level. So mm. the next two days, Johnny and I just analysed Mackenzie and we he, Johnny had convinced himself that we had failed by not doing enough tummy time and that, oh, she, okay. and that she was just weak and yep. we needed to do better. Yeah. So for two days we pushed her on tummy time and we analysed her every move and we kind of felt, oh, no, we, even within two days of tummy time she's getting she's getting better. Like yep. we, just, we just didn't have a clue. Yeah, and we were just grabbing at anything that we could. Uh, and were you googling things? Um, we were at that stage, mm. um, but because that can just be a a danger field, can't it? But we just didn't even have even a, a starting point, like no. you know, sort of low low mobility, low muscle tone, and it didn't really lead to, to anything. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. So um, then two days later you did go and see a paediatrician in Sydney? Yeah. Yeah. And what did he or she, um, did he, was it a lady or a man? It was a man. A man. Did he do tests on her or what was that appointment like? I remember we were waiting for the appointment and I, Johnny and I both were shaking and we were sweaty and we felt like we were going to, we're just so nervous. And then we got into the appointment and um, he just got me to undress Kenzie down to her um, nappy and then he started to do checks and it was things like checking her startle reflex, checking her her movement. Um, and it felt like he checked her for maybe three minutes and then he he said, I think... I think your daughter has spinal muscular atrophy and we were like, what is that? Mm. And he said, it's a genetic condition. And we said, okay, well, what do we do? And he said, no, there's no cure. It's terminal. (gasps) And where, where do you go from there? I just can't even imagine how do you pick your child up and walk out of that office. What is that like? Um, like moving through fog and a quicksand all together whilst feeling like your body is failing you, mm. like you're shaking, you're sweating, you feel like you're going to pass out, mm. you think you're going to throw up, you're trying to move you're moving so slowly because you feel like you can't get enough air into your body and you you pick her up and you cuddle her but then you have to put her down into a pram because you don't think that your body's, you don't trust your body not to drop her. And then you pay a really large fee to be. Yeah, so you go back to the counter and pay, yeah. That's extraordinary. Did he give you a time frame? He said he didn't give us a time frame. He said terminal and that was kind of where my brain, I, I 
I feel like I blanked out. Yeah. Um, Johnny asked a lot of questions, but he told us that there was a new drug that had come out and it was a miracle. <clears throat> so we, yeah, we didn't know what to think. Mm. And we had, he had lined us up with a neurologist the next day. Okay. So we had to take her home and, um, yeah. Mm. And what did the the coming days look like for you as a family? How did you navigate all of that? The night the paediatrician told us we, oh, we didn't sleep very much. We, I just, it's just it's such a blur. Mm. I, um, I just remember staying up and crying and looking at her and holding her hand and praying and wishing and feeling like it was a dream and a nightmare and you just can't hold on to any thoughts. Like you're just in this swirl in your head. It's like a thunderstorm is going on and you just feel numb and blank. It's just. Because at that point I am sort of presuming here you didn't know what this really meant and and what this was going to look like for you guys and how long you had left and all of that. I guess you would have had a million questions and a lot of confusion. And also because he wasn't a specialist, we still <clears throat> there was still some kind of hope that maybe it was an SMA. Okay. And also we still needed to have tests, like blood tests to check it. Yeah. So it was like we were given we were given this terminal diagnosis, but with no there was nothing more for us to hold on to. And we saw the neurologist the next day who's um, you know, a friend of ours now, she's beautiful. Um and she, we saw her the next day and that was really quite confronting because the room started with just her and then sort of slowly without us realising we sort of, the room started to get filled with people mm. and that's when you really know that you're now one of those people. Yeah. Is it a rare condition? It is. Um, it is a rare condition but it's hard to put it in that it's a rare condition when you look at it sort of in its entirety and that it's the number one genetic killer in babies under two but it's rare counted as rare but um something like one in 40 people are carriers for it okay so and then when you start looking at it in combination with actual other genetic conditions it's hard to really say that it's actually rare yeah so am I right in saying that you and Johnny are carriers yes and is that where the problem comes that yeah. two people are carriers yeah so well there's different types of genetic conditions there's dominant genetic conditions there's x-linked genetic conditions um, and those ones mean that really only one of the parents usually the female are the carriers and it doesn't matter if the other partner is, um, but the most common genetic condition and what SMA is is called a recessive genetic condition, meaning that both Bonnie and I carried a defective SMA and the SMN gene. Um, and so together with recessive genetic conditions, the reason why Johnny and I aren't affected by it is you get two each of your genes from your parents 
So you get your you get your 46 chromosomes, so your 23 pairs of chromosomes from your parents, one from your mum, one from your dad, and then genes are within those chromosomes. And so that means you get one from your mum, one from your dad. So we had one healthy SMN gene and one unhealthy. So our, our healthy one was able to take over the work of the unhealthy one, whereas for Mackenzie, she got the defective one for, from both Johnny and I, meaning she didn't have a healthy one to take over right work which meant that she was affected so with recessive genetic conditions you've got a 25 percent chance that your child will be affected you've got a 50 percent chance that they'll just be a carrier um and then you've got a 25 percent chance that they won't be a carrier or be affected okay so do we all carry this gene or do only some people so everyone carries the healthy gene. Some people carry the unhealthy. Okay. With genetic conditions, we found out that absolutely everyone on average carries three to five genetic conditions, so faulty genes that they yep. can pass on to their children. So everyone on average has three to five, meaning what happened to us can potentially happen to anyone. It just depends on who you get together with and have mm. a child with. So the chances of you and Johnny coming together and carrying this gene is fairly unlikely. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, so um, it, it is unlikely. It is, um, but at the same time, I don't like saying that because even though the chances of someone else having a child affected with SMA might be rare, but given everyone carries genetic conditions and there are thousands out there, yeah. if you look at the Genes for Genes Day website, there are in one in 20 children born with a genetic condition or birth defect. Mm. So whilst what happened to us is not common, genetic conditions can be common. Yes. It's really something that we as a society needs to become a lot more aware of. Yeah. And I guess um, for other people, it just presents in different ways. It might not be SMA, it might be yeah. other health problems. Yeah, it might be like a lot of people have really heard of cystic fibrosis. Yes. One of the most common that people have heard of. And just to give you an example, there's thousands of genetic conditions, as I said, but in Caucasian people, the top three genetic conditions are spinal muscular atrophy, what Kenzie had, cystic fibrosis and fragile X. Mm-hmm. And um, one in 20 people carries one of those three. There you go. And I guess you didn't know um, that that you both had this gene that could become a problem before you tried to fall pregnant? No, not at all. So yeah. currently um the medical practice well, when sorry when we got pregnant the medical practice around genetic conditions is that you only they only test or send couples for testing if they've got someone who's been affected in their family because then they have evidence that it's in their family but um four out of five children who are born with a genetic condition have no family history mm. so doing it that way is actually really dangerous because you're not picking up most of it. So that's why we 
hadn't been offered testing because no one in our family has been affected by SMA. We've just no. carried it. What happens in normal families is you just carry it through generations. Mm. And I guess, I mean, I don't know anybody that's had any sort of testing before they fall pregnant. It's, um, it's, I guess, it's certainly, I don't imagine it to be common practice and it's sort of not on the top of your mind when you're trying to fall pregnant for the first time or anything like that. Um, so obviously the Mackenzie's diagnosis was just an enormous shock on every level and completely out of the blue. Um, so, so was the diagnosis then confirmed? Yeah, very quickly it was confirmed. Um, the day that we saw the neurologist, we put Kenzie down to have a blood test and, um, and it was confirmed that she had SMA. Mm. And what, what do you need to do after that? What do they advise you to do? Um, until recently, there's nothing they can advise you to do. It's go, basically go home and look after the daughter and um, enjoy your time with her before she passes away. So most SMA babies, um, the longest one I previously lived to was two and the average life expectancy of an SMA type 1 baby, which is what Kenzie had, um, is eight months. So we were told that we had... Um, a matter of months with her. Um, when Kenzie got diagnosed, they had just come out with a trial drug and we were offered to go on that clinical trial. Um, so we were asked, we were told the information about the trial and we were asked to go home and process what had happened and decide whether we wanted to put her on this trial. Um, the drug was called Spinraza or otherwise called Nersinearsen. Um, it was brand new and was being trialled by a few hospitals around the world. Um, it was only being offered to babies um, with type 1 and it wasn't on the PBS so you could only get it through the trial and it was the at the time the most expensive drug in the world. So it was $250,000 uh, US per injection and you needed four a year for the rest of your life. So basically a wow. million dollars a year. So Far we, were told that, we were told that the drug was not a cure and that whatever your baby had already lost, they weren't going to get back. So Mackenzie was quite advanced apparently when she was diagnosed. So she wouldn't get a lot of that back. It would just stop from progressing. We were told that it would potentially... It could potentially at best give us maybe a few more years with her. Um, they didn't really know what the results was going to be because it was so new. It could meant it could have meant a lot more than a couple of years, but they said at best it would take her from a type 1 to a type 2. Um, SMA comes in different types. There's type 0, which is um, not very common, but it's usually when the baby dies at birth. Type 1, which was the most common, type 2 was the second most common, but type 2, and then it sort of went up to 4, I think. Um, type 2 was less common, but basically it meant that the person was in a wheelchair for life. Um, we've met a couple of type 2s. They can't, they can't even swat a fly away from their face. Um, they're trapped in their body. Um, it's very much like, so 
I should probably mention that SMA is a motor neuron condition. Um, so basically it meant that the motor neurons in her spinal cord were not sending out messages to the muscles in her body. So her muscles weren't moving, which meant that she would, she, her muscles were going into atrophy. So they were um, becoming floppy. Mm. So the adult version of SMA is ALS, which is what Stephen Hawking's had. So a type two's life is similar to what Stephen Hawking's. Yeah. So did you make a decision on the trial? Yeah, we did. Um, We decided not to put her on the trial. Mm. Um, We we had a lot of there's we had a lot of reasoning. Mm. Um, They also told us that. Not everyone reacts the same. Some people have bad reactions. Some people have had to have been taken off the trial. So far in Australia, there was two good examples of where it they had progressed and it was quite good. So there was a lot of what ifs, a lot of they were told that if we got put on the trial and it didn't get on the PBS, then we were on a drug that we couldn't afford and it yeah. would be taken off of us. So there was a lot of lot of issues and we decided it wasn't for us um we didn't think that it would give Mackenzie the quality of life that we believed she should have Mm. and we kind of looked at it and we don't there's a lot of people that we know who took took it up and it's such a personal decision but we felt that we um we didn't want to give her more time just for us yes it wasn't going to be good for her mm. and um and we were also really aware of the fact that she currently didn't know what was going on mm. you know in a couple of years time she would mm. and so we made the decision not to put her on the trial yeah so what did you decide to do then um after she was diagnosed how how did you want your life to look um if you were only left with months with her what did you want to do uh, well we both wanted to take those months off of work and we wanted to show her the best life she could possibly have and we wanted her to be doted on and for her to smile constantly as much as you can get a baby to smile and not be upset about food or sleep or Mm. we wanted her to just we wanted her to travel we wanted her to see originally we wanted her to see some of the world because travel meant a lot to us but uh, we got a passport for her and she we couldn't get insurance because she was terminally ill. So okay. and we were worried about where to travel to because medical like medical access because we still um we still needed to check and help with things to make her life better while she was here. So yeah. um so we kind of got this little process happening where like for starters, she could have what she want when she wanted. So if she wanted sleep, if she wanted to sleep on us, if she wanted food, whatever she wanted, she had it. There was no trying to get her into any routine or cycles. She yeah. live her life. And um, we were happy to put melted chocolate on her tongue and we didn't care about sugars or anything like that. We just wanted her to taste different and taste sensations. And yeah. And um Every three weeks we would travel somewhere. So we would spend we would spend two weeks at home having a normal life with her, just 
every day we did something different, whether it was meeting a new person, going to a new park, going to aquarium, seeing the lights at Vivid, anything that she could experience, touch, mm. taste, see. Um, and then on the third week, if she was doing well and the doctor said she was okay, we would travel somewhere. So she she went to Broome, Cairns, the Snowy Mountains. She went to Tasmania. Perth. Wow. She travelled around Australia and she, yeah. she went to rainforests and we went and put her feet in little dinosaur footprints in Broome and we took her on a helicopter. We took her on a hovercraft. She just she just did everything yeah. and it was documented and she just, yeah. That's just so beautiful. Did she, was she able to communicate with you with her body language that she was happy or enjoying certain things? Yeah, definitely. She was, so SMA babies are, are, are very intelligent, um, I guess, also because they're not spending as much time focusing on the movement. Um, she's just so intelligent and so expressive through her beautiful big blue eyes and she would coo and she would go and it was very obvious when she was happy. Mm. Yeah. Was Johnny working for the um, in each fortnight that you were home? No. So we made the decision we didn't want either of us to work um, because how do you work when you're missing out on a second life and you know you don't have long. So we used up all of our leave. We used all of our sick leave, all of our rec leave. Um, we spent a while trying to get the organisation to give us some some leave and that was just a, that was a hard fight. Um, I think that organisations can mm. when it comes to compassion. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so we both didn't work and we both spent every second with her. Yeah. And how was that mentally for you both? Was it on your mind all the time or were you able to be, present in the moment at times and just genuinely enjoy that for what it was or you were always aware that time was ticking we would forget sometimes mm. but then it was a very quick slap in the face when we remembered yeah um you know we'd all be her grandparents came up and visited as much as we could and they came on and out on a couple of trips with her and um we would just be she was just constantly doted on and um, and we would just be amazed at the beauty that was her in front of us and we'd mm. just be all giggling or something at something that she would do. And then and then you'd feel the whole room, remember? Yeah. How sad. Um, so as the months were going by, were you noticing her deteriorating, I guess? Or, yeah, did you notice that there were changes happening? Um, we did notice when she was moving a little bit less. Um, she couldn't move her legs very much unless she was in like a pool or a bath. Um, she would sometimes wiggle a tiny bit. She could move her arms a little bit, but it was more of like a, like swinging it up to her mouth. So she could put her fingers in her mouth. Um, she didn't have any head movement. So I don't think we noticed her losing necessarily more, but we noticed because she was getting bigger. Yeah. It became more obvious. Mm. And 
you know, you'd feel that heartbreaking moment when you could feel that she was looking at something and she had interest in it, but she couldn't reach for it. So we were, we tried to always pick up on that and bring it to her mouth because like any baby, they just go straight for the mouth to try to figure out. So we'd, we'd let her suck on things or feel things and we'd bring her hands up and um at different textures we'd get her hands to rub against them and so we'd we'd notice as she was getting bigger yeah and had the doctors and specialists told you um how might end and were you looking for signs that maybe it was coming to a close at some point we were really we were really sort of we were told that there was different ways that she might go. We were told that she could, they had had instances where babies had been completely healthy and then they had just passed away in their sleep. So it came out of nowhere. So that was really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Every morning we'd look at she was, that was um, very traumatizing. Yeah. Um, we were told that she could, um, she could potentially go in and out of hospitals. So a lot of SMA babies, they just sort of go in and out, in and out, getting weaker and weaker, and then eventually sort of they pass away of care or like a little children's hospice. Or she could get a cold and very quickly deteriorate and basically we could lose her over a couple of days. So um, we didn't really know what it looked like. Mm. So I guess there was huge anxiety, I can imagine, with all of those scenarios on your mind and just wondering if this is, is this happening now? And um, yeah. So um, can you talk us through, I guess, how her life did end and, and what the days leading up to that point, what did you notice and what was happening for her? So we had no real indication at the time that anything was going to happen. It was very quick. Um, we would always celebrate her month day because we knew she wouldn't get to um, we knew she wouldn't get to her first birthday. So we would celebrate the day that she was born each month, and we would do so that we called them her month days, and we would do something to celebrate, and we'd get some like custard or chocolate for her to taste and. We had spent her last month day, it was her seven-month day in Tasmania with my parents and we had taken her platypus spotting and she had gone um, on a ferry down to Bruni Island and she we had gone on walks and fishing and she had spent a day on a yacht on the Huon River. <laughs> so yeah. she um, had a beautiful little month day and then yeah. we travelled back up to Sydney, my dad stayed in Tassie for a few more days and we were packing up our house because we were moving to be closer to Sydney Children's Hospital. And one morning Johnny was having a nap because she had been quite restless the night before and my mum was packing up the kitchen and I was on the couch with her and I I noticed that she was starting to change colour and I yelled at my mum to come and check and she grabbed Kenzie out of my arms and sort of started smacking her back while I yelled for Johnny to get up and I got on the phone to the ambulance and 
I don't really remember the conversation to the ambulance, but they, um, I got off the phone with them and I remember my mom was just about to start doing a breath of CPR on Kenzie, but um, her colour started coming back. So we just sort of kept rubbing her back, trying to dislodge or help whatever was making her change colour. And I remember the paramedics got there, ambulance got there and I could tell from the look on their face they were concerned. Mm. So we, she and I got into the ambulance. She got strapped onto me on the bed and we, Johnny followed in our car behind and we just went lights and sirens to the hospital. And we got there and I remember the emergency department of the kids' hospital was filled with like about 20 people waiting for us to get there. And it was just terrifying her neurologist was there and I just remember the look on her face and they put an oxygen mask on her and they got her stabilized and then we went up to the ICU and we spent the next four almost five days in ICU feeling like she was getting better then she dropped and then she was getting better and then she dropped and we just sort of didn't know from moment to moment if she was going to come home. Mm. Um, we had already done a, we had done a no resuscitation plan. So if we had made the, the decision that if it was something that she could come back from, then we wanted them to work on her. But if it was something that would, you know, put her on life support or affect her brain or anything, we didn't want that. So we just... It turns out she had just got the common cold, but SMA babies can't clear their airways. They can't oh. cough. So the mucus had gone into her lungs and collapsed one of her lungs and we were trying to get that lung healthy and eventually we did, but in the process they had to put a tube down her throat and it had nicked her stomach internally and she started bleeding internally. Oh, Rachel. <clears throat> And um, she was just covered with wires and oxygen masks and I couldn't see her face anymore for days. I couldn't hold her. And she was going between developing a temperature and all of her nappies were just filled with blood from the internal bleed and she just, you know, we had meetings every day, every morning and every afternoon to see what was happening and um, eventually we had the last meeting and they said that they could put her on life support but that she probably wouldn't come back from it. Mm. So we spent one more night with her and they put her in a bed between the two of us and we got to sleep with her and play the wiggles to her and we cut off a little lock of her hair and just was with her and then the next morning we... It was time when we took off her oxygen mask and she had two little breaths in her and then she was gone and we couldn't do more for her. So, yeah. Gosh. What, what a tremendous set of parents you were to her. She was such a lucky little girl. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. She lost her life. She would have just had the most 
amazing upbringing, I'm sure. Um, gosh, how how do you then leave her? Um, it's by far the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Mm. Um, after she passed away, we I washed her little body and um, I put her in some clothes, like her little onesie, and we wrapped her up and I made the decision that we wanted to be the ones to, to walk her down to the morgue. We didn't want anyone to do that for us. So we we walked down there and I still remember putting her on the table and she was wrapped in the same blankets that she had been wrapped in when she was born mm. and we had to walk out and I, mm. yeah, I don't know how. There's so many days that I don't know how I am still physically here yeah because I feel like the pain should have destroyed me yeah that's definitely understandable I I just cannot even fathom how you can do that and I guess you on a in a way can't either it must be some part of your body to survive or something that makes your legs walk out of there it's not a conscious decision it's mm-hmm. just a nightmare scenario in every way. And the people say they don't know how they'll survive. Yeah. You just, your body keeps breathing. So. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so did you plan a funeral? We did. Um, we did. I wanted a family funeral and then a, and then a, and then we planned a farewell party for everyone else where it was it was kind of the first birthday she should have had with cakes and balloons and yeah trying to farewell her in a way that you should well that you should but that a child you know it's not i didn't want people at the funeral service i didn't want anyone we didn't have any priest or anyone standing up saying sermons where I was so determined that it wouldn't I'd never met her standing up talking about the loss of a child when all we wanted and we arranged with the funeral home was for her to be with us mm. and for everyone to leave mm. and so we sat around her as a family in a circle so she was surrounded and I had brought in all of her toys so everyone could hold a toy and I had been given some bottles of mum champagne when she was born and we all had a glass of mum champagne and we all spoke about things that we loved about her and um, her grandparents read her her favourite stories and then we watched some videos of her and it was just it was just us family mm. just wanting to love her the way that yeah and we were you know I didn't want people all in black and I just didn't want that but then a few days later we had her farewell party at Centennial Park and like I said it was 
we played her favourite music and we had big colourful um, like pink picnic rugs all over the ground and photos of her on every rug and we had unicorn piñatas and we had cupcakes and cake pops and we had a couple of hundred people turn up and wow my um the the lady who married us did this did the service or did the not service but just sort of ran the event because we she knew us she knew Mackenzie and it felt right and then we had all a couple of hundred people sing Mackenzie's favourite song to her, which is Britney Spears' Hit Me Baby One More Time. <laughs> so every single person sung to her and um, and then we released 100 balloons to, to her to play with. Yeah. What a, what a beautiful farewell for her and so fitting. And even the organisation of that, I'm just thinking as you're telling, been enormous for you to do in such a such an intense time of grief for your daughter um a tremendous effort um so did after after that then did you and johnny go back to work like it's it's just that awful transition and that expectation that you know life has to go on and you have to you know you've still got bills to pay it's so difficult well so many people were surprised like initially we we just up and left and we went to New York for a week or two okay Um, we needed to get away we didn't want to speak to anyone we didn't want to see anyone and we needed to go to the busiest place that we could think of in the world and we got up every morning and we walked from 7 a.m to 10 p.m and just exhausted ourselves so we could sleep yeah and we didn't contact anyone or speak to anyone because we just we just couldn't live we couldn't be at home we and yeah we just we just had to get away mm. and we told our parents and that was it we just and then we got back and we went back to work Johnny went back to work four weeks I think after Kenzie passed away and I went back six weeks after and people ask, you know, how did you go back? Like even two years later, people are back at work yet? And I was like, we live in Sydney, we have bills, like we have to go back and we had no choice, we had no leave left because we had used it all up looking after her and it was awful going back. It was absolutely excruciating. Like I went back and I lasted on the first day, I lasted like three hours and yeah. I spent whole three hours at my desk crying and then I had to go back every day and try another extra hour an extra hour until and it was so hard because people didn't know how to treat us so basically no one would speak to us and Mm. yeah it was it was awful horrible and and you've got such an important job too and your mind I presume has to really be on the job most of the time um dealing with some heavy things and big things um, while going through just the, the, the worst thing any parent could ever go through. That is just so hard. Um, and then how was Mackenzie's mission born and when did that come about? So we, 
uh, we, in the month after Mackenzie was diagnosed, uh, we had did, done a lot of research and spoken. We had so many appointments with genetic counsellors and we found out all of the information that I told you previously about the fact that everyone carries genetic conditions that they can pass on and that one in 20 children is born with a genetic condition. And we started to get really angry and go, well, wait a minute. I spent months planning for this pregnancy. I had done I'd made Johnny go and get sperm tests. Like I checked my egg levels. Like how was this not brought up as something, you know, during pregnancy, we did all the ultrasounds that we needed to do. We did the NIP test. So the non-invasive prenatal test, which checks chromosome conditions. At the time, it only checked three chromosome conditions. These days now you can check all of the chromosomes, but no one had told us when I was planning to have children that having genetic carrier screening was an option, that we could find out what it was that both of us carried and whether together as a couple we had a risk of a child being affected. And when we found out that the test already existed and that it was it's a simple mouth swab, it's literally a saliva swab that you can send in the mail and when I found out that that was what it was, but that it was only to offer to people who had a family history, I was so angry. And I remember, I remember writing about how angry I was. And when I we had we'd had family meetings about everything, and in the family meeting, I said I would write to the health minister or to the prime minister. And Johnny initially was like, that's not going to do anything. You know, it's not going to do anything. And I said, we'll I have to do something. Mm. And my parents were the ones that said, well, how about we just send it to all of the ministers? So I wrote a letter a month after Mackenzie was diagnosed. We would have all of these meetings when she was asleep because when she was awake, it was all about her. Mm. And um, I wrote a letter and my parents hand-delivered it to Parliament House and they hand addressed it to all 275 members of Parliament. Wowzers. And they dropped it off at Parliament House. And then slowly we started to get people writing back to us. And there were people saying, We completely agree with what you're talking about. We should be doing this. We're going to write to the Health Minister on your behalf. We'll support you. Some people didn't write back. Some people just sent the letter back or the photo of Mackenzie we had sent back to us saying you've got the wrong person, which was devastating. Um, but we got some really good responses, like people like Tanya Plibersek, she actually personally called us and a couple of times because she of us and she was just so beautiful. And then And then we heard from the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, and we started hearing from him and he would write to us and say, I'm looking into it. And um, we met with him. He had heard that Mackenzie had passed away. Okay. And we met with him the next month or a couple of months after. And he was so beautiful and he cried when he met us. Oh. And he said, I promise that we'll, we'll do something for Mackenzie, for her life, for all the children who should be here. I think that was in February 2018 mm. and Mackenzie passed away on the 22nd of October in 2017. So okay. 
her anniversary coming up in a mm. like, three years without her. And um, but then we heard from we heard from Greg Hunt again. But um, while this was happening, we started to we got introduced to. Um, by Mackenzie's neurologist who had started to ask the same questions and go, actually, wait a minute, we keep focusing on all these trials and these cures, but what if we took it one step back and these like these families had the option to have a child that didn't have a terminal condition? And we got introduced to this trio of amazing, amazing men who worked in the field they were either geneticists or pathologists and worked in the field and they had started lobbying the government to say why isn't this testing offered more widely at the same time so we kind of joined forces and um we got invited so the three lead um the three men and my family got invited and they said can you come down to canberra for the budget which was in may 2018 and we went down and we got invited to the to the budget announcement and they announced that they were going to put $500 million into a genomics project over the next 10 years to see what Australia can do in terms of genetics. First research project was going to be a $20 million pilot project learning as to why whether we could bring genetic carrier screening to Australia for free. And it was going to be called Mackenzie's Mission. Oh, my gosh. That is just incredible. And I'm just working out that timing in my head. Is that like 12 months since the letter? Yeah. Wow. What a turnaround and what a response. You wouldn't, you surely would not have imagined anything like that. We thought that we'd be fighting for Mackenzie. Yeah. So we wrote the letter. He was diagnosed in May 2017. We wrote the letter in June 2017 and then the announcement was in May 2018, so 11 months after the letter was sent. And did you know going there that something like that was going to be announced or was that a complete surprise? We knew something must be happening because there was no way that they would invite Johnny and I down to Canberra also, we had started to do a lot of media and so we had done a couple of the first sort of media that we started doing was the 7.30 report. Um, Sophie Scott did it. So we didn't know what was going to be announced, but we thought that it must be something. We thought they wouldn't ask Johnny and I to come down. And they also asked the 7.30 report who we had been doing um, we had been doing, we did a two-part series for 7.30 Report with Sophie Scott and they had invited their, uh, Sophie down and 7.30 down and um, so we had actually, we sorry, we had been called in to see Greg Hunt um, before the budget. So when the budget was announced that night, we knew what was coming but we only knew by like five hours. So we'd had a meeting with Greg Hunt and um, he told us what was happening and we had the three medical professionals there with us as well and we were, we, it was, the whole room was crying. Mm. Greg I Hunt was medical professionals because they had spent their lives dedicated to this. Johnny and I were um, 
but we didn't know that it was called Mackenzie's Mission. Yeah, that's just um, the icing on the cake, isn't it? Yeah, and Greg Hunt called it that. How beautiful. Is, he's such an amazing guy. Like he just is incredible. And then we went to the budget that night and then the next day we were asked to come to the press club lunch and before the press club lunch, um, Scott Morrison asked to meet us um, because he was the treasurer, so he was the one who had announced it. And um, and he knew someone, a family friend, who had lost a child to SMA as well. Okay. So, um, yeah, we were just, we were blown away. The grandparents mm. were there. They were crying. Like, it mm. was just, like, to be given this legacy, like, mm. it wouldn't bring our daughter back, but... Like her life was actually being recognised. She wasn't just another number of another child who passed away because children pass away all the time. And Yeah. Did it help with your grief in a way? Did you feel a shift in how you were feeling? It it did. It it helped. It helped a lot in some ways. Like there's not it I don't think it changed the grief so much as um it it gave me a focus. It kept yeah. giving me a focus and it kept making me feel like I wasn't letting her down. Like yeah. I, my life was still about her. I was still, I was still her mum. Yeah, I could still do things for her. And it wasn't, I imagine, as hopeless. Yeah, like something good has come out of your huge loss, and and hopefully will help however many families. Yeah. in similar situations, which is just extraordinary. Um, so what did you plan um, or did you plan moving forward to have other another baby? Was that on the radar at all? Yeah, so we had started. We knew that we would probably need to go through IVF to have lots of them. So we were told that they could create a test for us, specifically developed for Johnny and I, using our blood and some of the blood that they had taken from Kenzie um, when she had been diagnosed that had been stored. Um, so we started that process before we lost Kenzie in the hope that we could kind of have her siblings and have them meet. Um, but that wasn't meant to be. We got the test took three months to develop. And um, we got called a month after we lost Kenzie to say that the test was ready. And so that was really difficult to go, okay, well, what do we do? But then you're also, you know, by this stage, um, maybe like 34. Mm. So time is also difficult. So with IVF, so well, anyone who's got a risk of passing on a genetic condition, they can sort of have more kids in two different ways. You can try naturally. And then if um, then at like 12 weeks and five days, you can do a CVS and they test the baby to see if they're affected um, or you can go through IVF. And with IVF, they can, it's just like a normal round of IVF, but they let the embryos grow for an extra day. So they hatch out of their shell and then they take a couple of the cells that would have been the placenta and they can test to see if the baby is affected. And then they only put back the embryos that aren't affected. So we started going down the path of IVF and it's been really, really difficult. We we know a lot of people who have been in the same situation of us and they their next pregnancy was healthy. Mm. For us, it wasn't as easy. Um, 
So initially we did five rounds of IVF and had only got one healthy embryo. We decided to have a break and we got pregnant naturally. And um, we tested the baby at just before 13 weeks and it was a little girl and she had SMA as well. So we had to make the really tough decision that we did a medical interruption Mm. at 14 weeks pregnant. Um, Then we went back to IVF and we did another four rounds or three rounds, I think. So that had taken us up to eight rounds of IVF, which is very hard. Um, We'd got a couple more embryos, which was fantastic. So we had three at that stage. We transferred the first two and they didn't stick, which is very unusual when they're genetically tested because they're tested for chromosome conditions as well. So when they didn't stick, we had to ask why. And it was devastating because it had taken us so long to get those embryos and so quickly to lose them. Mm. And so we did a laparoscopy and they found that the IVF has had created stage four endometriosis for me. Okay, so you hadn't had that beforehand? No. Right. Because we got pregnant so nat- so easily and yeah. I was so fertile that we can only assume that the high levels of estrogen may have caused, because I did so many rounds, yeah. may have caused difficulties because as soon as we had that laparoscopy and they removed the endo, we transferred the last embryo we had and it stuck. Okay. And that was amazing. So the genetic testing tests for chromosome conditions and SMA, and it had come back as clear for this embryo. Um, but we did the NIP test because it, it's only 95% accurate, mm-hmm. which is fantastic, but we were really cautious. So we did the NIP test to check the chromosomes um, at 10 weeks, and then we were going to do a CVS to test the SMA side of things. But the NIP test came back as being high risk for a chromosome condition. And that completely blew us away because this was a genetically tested embryo. So we did the CVS and it was confirmed it was a little baby boy and he had a serious chromosome condition. And we had fallen into the 5% inaccuracy in genetic. Yeah. So we had to. At 14 weeks again, this was in February of this year, we had to medically interrupt our baby mm. and say goodbye to him. And did you name both of those babies you were carrying? Yeah, so the little girl that we had, we called her Bella. Um, and then the little boy that we had that we said goodbye to this year was Leo. Okay. And um, They're lovely names. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so that was in February this year. Were you just about down and out at that point or did you still have a bit of something in you to keep fighting? I think we were always going to keep fighting because the idea of stopping, even though we were so hurt and so broken, the idea of stopping felt like it would have it would have been the last thing to break me, like I needed something to fight for. Mm. And I'm very, we're very lucky that Johnny and I, I guess because of so many conversations and so many hardships, we we had the same view. Leo really knocked Johnny around massively and he didn't trust IVF anymore. So 
he didn't want to do another round of IVF, but the medical I the medical professionals were saying, well, now that you've had the laparoscopy, maybe IVF will be more successful. So try one more time and then go to natural again. Um, so we tried IVF one more time and we got another two embryos. Um, well, one definite, as definite as you can be with those sort of odds, and one that had mosaicism, which means that it it looked healthy, but there was some. It looked like kind of looking at a television with the black and white static, like um, they they weren't a hundred percent sure. So mm-hmm. we transferred that one embryo, and um, I'm now sixteen weeks pregnant today. Oh, today. Yeah. Yeah. How wonderful. So have you got through the the tests that, you know, previously you had to make decisions to end the pregnancies with Bella and Leo? Have you got through those obstacles with this pregnancy? We've done the next test and it came back as the chromosomes being clear, which is where we had fallen down with Leo. So at the moment now our statistics stand at 99% chance that the tests are right. So 99% chance that the chromosomes are okay and 99% that we don't, the baby doesn't have SMA. Um, but because everything has hit us so far and statistics are a little bit hard for us to really handle their screening tests and so we have an amniocentesis on Monday in a couple of days to it's a diagnostic test, so the needle will go through my stomach and it will pick up some of the amniotic fluid and they'll be able to test the baby. And look, that's really hard because it does come with a risk, so it's really hard to go, well, you know, we, we do a risk of an amnio, but what's going to happen to us and our mental health if we if we don't know for sure that this baby's okay? Mm. Um, so... So we've decided to do it and we've got the best in Australia doing it as far as we know. But yeah. Yeah, we're still we're still very nervous. So we yeah. just we just want that test done and to feel like we're a normal couple with a normal pregnancy. Have you been able to celebrate this pregnancy in a way? Or is it still um you're still on edge? We're still on edge, definitely. We are able. We were able to celebrate in that we did a gender reveal, which is not something that we really thought that we would do for any children. But we really, we're really sick of having every single moment taken away from us. Like like a normal couple, we get a positive pregnancy test, and that's not that's not all joy and amazing for us because we've had so many positive pregnancy tests where the it's been a chemical pregnancy and the test is like the positive has fallen away or so we thought, you know what, let's do a gender reveal because our whole family needs to have some kind of celebration. Mm. And so we have felt like we've celebrated, but it's not, we're not, we're not comfortable yet. Yeah. Do you allow yourself to dream that this might work out and you will have a baby? Yes. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time working on my mental health because so often, like normally Johnny's the positive one and through so many IVF rounds he was the positive, whereas I would look at it being very 
negative because I felt like maybe um, there was less far to fall. Yeah. If I try to prepare myself, whereas this one, it's kind of been right from the get-go of even starting IVF, I'm like, okay, this is it. And I've been a lot more hopeful. Um, yeah. Mm. So I feel I feel like we'll be able to, so this, we have always nicknamed our embryos and this was Poppy. So yeah. we, we um, I do feel like we'll be able to bring Poppy home. Yeah. But I'll... I really hope that I'm not wrong. Yeah, me too. Um, and I know like you have, by the sounds, a lot of really supportive family and friends around you who will just be egging you on all the way until you can come home with your baby. It's very exciting, but you obviously still have a few more little hurdles to jump through. Um, Can you tell us about writing your book and when it was published and how that has been received by Australia? Yeah, the book was, I was basically... I sort of I started talking about Mackenzie on my Instagram because I felt like people on my Facebook were being, people aren't very good with grief, people aren't very good with child loss and I have learned, we've learned a lot of lessons along the way here and um, we've really learned that we've lost people along the way, we've gained people along the way but it's been, our society needs to change very dramatically about how it helps people go through tragedy. Um, people get scared and they think that it's infectious, so they back away. And I needed a space to be able to talk about her, so I just started f- posting photographs of her on my Instagram. And and then I needed to talk about genetic carrier screening because I needed to scream it from the rooftops to anyone who would listen. And slowly I started to gain followers and I got this beautiful little Instagram community who have just, like, blown me away. Like, I really had no expectations that anything would happen it was just my safe space and now I've just got this huge group of people around me who they share their stories and they prop me up and it's just incredible and for someone who's normally quite a private person and for someone who you know in police you're not usually supposed to have much of a social profile so it's been quite, um, quite an adjustment but a beautiful one and then I started what I wanted to say was so much bigger than an Instagram post would allow, so I started a blog called My Life of Love and I started talking about genetic carrier screening. I started talking about IVF because so many people don't even know what IVF is like. They think you get a couple of injections and you get a baby. It's like, oh, you can't have children? Well, it's all right, you just go to IVF and it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And there's so many emotions that come along with it and pregnancy after loss and I just needed a space to talk. And then I remember I was introduced to the beautiful Erin Molan and um, and she had a friend who was a publisher and they said write a summary of, of what's happened and I wrote a summary and the publisher Claire went to Alan and Unwin and said I think we should publish the story and they they offered me a contract and for the next year I wrote a book which is just incredible mm. it's called Mackenzie's Mission as well and um you know I at first I I thought okay we're just going to be talking not just but we're going to talk about Kenzie and then like it just sort of everything kept happening to us and then I just sort of had more than I could try to put into a book you know I talk about grief and what it's like and 
how to help people through a tragedy and how to be a good person and how to use your voice. I talk about Mackenzie's mission and genetic carrier screening, but also what IVF is really like. And it was really cathartic to do it. And I am so, so it was published in June this year. And it's actually, it was published pretty much almost to the day that we actually started testing couples under Mackenzie's mission, the research project. So it was huge. Wow. And um, to hold that book in my hands, I felt, I felt relief because I felt like very exposed. I felt very exposed, but I felt relief because, you know, he was her life documented yeah. and it was tangible and she was here and yeah. What an amazing achievement as well in such a short time, really. You have just achieved so much um, when really you should have, you know, and a lot of people do crumble and that's entirely okay and expected but um you know she she would be just so proud of her parents I'm sure it's just amazing um how has the book been received really well really well I think um I have to sometimes I have to sort of encourage people gently that um like with child loss and grief people get a little bit scared like they're scared to have an emotion and um I have to sort of remind people that, um, for starters, unfortunately, death is like what has happened to us is absolutely tragic. But death, people shouldn't be scared of it because it's the one certainty in life, really. Mm. And it's better to sort of. I just think that there's so much that you can learn through watching people's lives and listening to their stories, and that I really tried to write the book where it showed what Kenzie had given us as opposed to what the tragedy had taken from us. Yeah. We truly look at Mackenzie as though she's the biggest gift our life has ever given us because, honestly, I feel like I was like half my capacity, like everything was black and white before Mackenzie came along and then everything that happened to us just turned our life, turned the brightness in our life up and turned it into colour and, Sometimes I look at people who have just got no perspective on life and I feel sorry for them because, yes, there is sadness, but Mackenzie was a gift and she is a gift and I just want to share that with everyone else and I really make sure that people are not scared to read it because most, like I think every single person I've spoken to who's read it said that they walked away feeling more, like they felt stronger, they felt hopeful they felt encouraged to do kindness and that's what I really try to I want people to associate Mackenzie with kindness and with life not with sadness Mm. Um, you know I encourage people to do donate blood or you know go and drop off some gross extra groceries that you've made that you've got on the weekend to Ronald McDonald house and I just think that there's so much more that we can do as a community and and really I get messages every day from people who have read the book and um, and they're just amazing. They're amazing, these messages. They're just like, yeah, I feel like the book's been really well received and I just encourage more people to, to read it and not be scared of it. Yeah, that's so great. Um, and congratulations on that too. That's It's just wonderful. Um, and did you write that yourself or did you have some assistance in writing it? No, I wrote it all myself. Yeah. 
I bet you didn't think you'd be having a book published in amongst all of this. Yeah, that's amazing. Not at all. Like there's so much of our life like we just we just didn't expect at all. And that's another reason why we kind of just look at our little girl like she's she's our hero. Mm, Totally. Um so moving forward and um fingers crossed Poppy hangs around. Um what do you what would you like to achieve in the, the coming years and what do you hope your family will look like and sort of any personal or professional goals that you might have? Um, we would really like just some, not so much normality, but, you know, if we could have Poppy, we'd be so thankful. And in a, in a dream situation, we'd have another child. Mm. And we'd have two living children and we'd have so many angel babies. Yeah. Um, But, you know, we would have our three, what would have been our three children, we'd have Mackenzie, Poppy and and a third. That would be the dream, but we'll see what happens. Mm. Um, we, We talk about our retirement and we'd love to, like, have a property in near Byron and, have rescue animals like that would be the dream later on um I really want to continue with Mackenzie's mission um I really want to continue I want to see that through to it being made Australia-wide and free but I feel like there's so many other like offshoots of everything that we're doing when it comes to genetics I think that there's more that needs to be done around the space of mental health after pregnancy loss I think that IVF needs to be made more available in Australia there's just so many offshoots of sort of what we're doing that I'm really really passionate about um you know I don't plan on having Poppy and then Mackenzie's mission is done and we mm. move forward with our life like that's our that's our lifelong mission yeah and it's not you know it's not to overshadow our life or anything like that which people might think that we're dedicating our life to it it adds to it um but we just hope to have just a really nice life with our kids and we hope that our kids just you know I talk about recently that it'd be really nice for them to be at school and drawing pictures and there's an extra little bub in the picture and people will say who's that and they'll just say oh that's my sister Kenzie yeah and it such a it'll just be a known that that's their big sister Mm. and then hopefully when they're older they can read the book and they can understand what's happened to us and professionally um I recently became a detective which has been a lifelong goal um you know I'd like to sort of continue on with my career maybe become a sergeant but but really um I feel most passionate about Mackenzie's mission. Mm. Yeah, there's um, there's certainly you can tell there's a lot of passion there and, of course, I guess naturally there's a lot of drive because it's a way that you can um, have a legacy for her and that her the loss of her was not in vain but um, a lot of positive things can come from from that loss and it will help help a lot of people even maybe around the world um yeah 
So, Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. It's just been a pleasure to hear your story. Um, uh, certainly an emotional roller coaster, and unfortunately you're the one who's had to live all of that. Um, but I think you and Johnny have just done the most tremendous job in battling all the hurdles that you've been given and you just keep fighting and it's it really is inspirational and I hope that people listening to this and people who read your book are able to draw some strength from that and know that um, even though sometimes the odds are really against you that um, with a bit of determination sometimes you can get through it so thank you very much for for everything you've shared today of course and I'm really really thankful to you for wanting to hear us for you wanting The final amnio results for Poppy have since come back and he is a healthy baby who Rachel and Johnny are looking forward to bringing home in a few months. If you enjoyed this episode, learnt something or think somebody you know might like to listen to it, please share it with them. You can also give the podcast a rating on your app to help other people find conversations for Ali easier. Thank you.